Hello, I'm Jack Shilito, and welcome to this episode of My Aunt Mabel, the fifth and final episode. In this one, we'll look at how Mabel dealt with fame and her celebrity status, and how she dealt with, and as you'll soon hear, basically hated, the rise of television. A 1932 Radio Times article declared Constant Juris one of the most popular wireless celebrities. My success as a broadcaster was never a failing source of surprise and pleasure to me, but it also made me anxious. It is one thing to capture the fancy of the public, but quite another thing to be able to keep it. When the BBC made Constant Juris a star in 1925, she also gained celebrity status as her voice became increasingly well-known to audiences across the UK. In her autobiography, Mabel remembered how early on in her career, fans crowded round the car, waving and shouting at Michael Hogan and herself, and once the two were crushed by a crowd of fans and the police had to be called in to help. Mabel recalled receiving letters of appreciation, or My applause by post, as she called it, which offered praise such as Your turn last night was immense, and Thank you for your clever and intensely amusing impersonations and I've never laughed so heartily in my life. Soon the letters became more personal. As well as the letters of praise, Mabel received requests from people hoping she would help them break into radio, photos of men interested in marriage and numerous begging letters from people with hard luck stories to whom she often sent money because she was distressed by their situations. It wasn't all roses though, Early on in Mabel's career, she gave her address to an admirer who showed up at her door and over the course of a fearful two hours threatened to strangle her. Here's Jen to explain more. Celebrity um, in, in, in this time period was really much different than we can imagine now um, because people had, people had access to phone numbers. Like they could have called Mabel up if they wanted to. Um, and she talked, Mabel talks about um, in her in her autobiography, she talks about quite a bit actually. This one particular case where she um, uh, she's out at a performance and this fan of hers comes to backstage and strikes up a conversation with her, and then she tells him where her house is, and then he shows up at her house, and then he won't leave. And um, now she tells that story in various different ways. Either Bean is at home or she's not at home. Michael's at home or he's not at home. And I think she realizes like, if I tell that story and Michael's at home, that's bad because I'm a bad mother. And I just invited this, you know, this person to my house who's, you know, who eventually tells her he's gonna kill her. You know, it's that kind of really kind of stalking um, episode that happens. And it just tells you her, you know, how naive she was to say, oh, oh, you liked my work. Well, come back and we'll have a cup of tea. And it's like, that's not how it works, right? That story became part of Mabel's story of fame and its consequences, told multiple times over the course of her career. The situation was resolved, by the way, when the stalker's taxi driver came to the door insisting on his fare. Or he was asked by Bina, Mabel's housekeeper, to come and help, depending on the version of the story Mabel tells. Mabel had hoped that the Huggets film franchise she developed might help her launch a successful film career. These hopes are reflected in Dennis's observations of the opening night of the film Holiday Camp in August 1947. Mabel had ordered an enormous Rolls-Royce to take us to the cinema. 
there was an expensive and fashionable crowd. We were sitting in good seats, but not among the cream of the elite. The air was blue with the smoke of flashlights, but they did not flash for us. This, naturally, did not surprise or worry me. But I could feel Mabel seething with thwarted stardom at my side. It seems that Mabel did have an urge to be noticed and acknowledged. Here's Jen on Mabel's desire for celebrity status. Around the late 1920s into the early 30s, um, there's more and more like pictures that come out in magazines. So you can see what Mabel looks like. And um, the BBC had their own, they had the listener and then they had the Radio Times and they'd have these tiny little pictures, you know, that you could kind of imagine who they are. But I think once you, once you are able, once the audiences are able to see who she is, I think that's when the celebrity really begins to kick off. That's when people begin to recognize her and Michael Hogan. Um, I think she really enjoyed it. I think, um, I think she expected it. Um, honestly, after people got to know, just like the Dennis, um, you know, the Dennis story, I think she expected people to recognize her and I think she wanted to be recognized. Fiercely protective of her intellectual property and her professional status, Mabel thrived upon the lack of structure in the nascent BBC of the 1920s and early 1930s. She took advantage of the flexibility of those early years and built her radio celebrity by experimenting with and developing an understanding of both the medium and her audience. In the creation of a comedic family, Mabel carved out a niche which made her recognisable among a field of already established radio comics. When, in 1950, Mabel wrote to E.A. Harding, a BBC producer, offering more radio plays, she sounded a note of alarm about the power of television. Radio has been my life for 25 years. I admit fear to think that we may have to go down before television. Harding replied, I don't for a moment think that the sound radio is going down before what is so disgustingly described in America, I believe, as video. Though if and when, and it is a big if and I think it will be a long when, there is something like national coverage, I am pretty sure that most of the audience for popular drama will want to look as well as listen in. This proved prophetic and highlights the theme of new mediums. They tend to be additive rather than cannibalistic. Cinema didn't kill off theatre, TV didn't kill off cinema, and so on. In 1953, Mabel played the role of Earthy Mangold on TV in the four-part children's series, Wurzel Turns Detective, as in Wurzel Gummidge, the TV series about a scarecrow that comes to life. That sounds like it should have been an enjoyable experience, and yet another string to Mabel's bow. However, she found that she hated the experience. Here's Jen on Mabel's TV work in the early 50s. She eventually shows up on TV once or twice in the 1950s, um, doing work um, with the Gummages. Um, so she's the Wurzel Gummage series, children's series. Um, and she hates that experience. She hates TV. Um, but I think had she had she lived longer, she would have done more and more TV. And maybe we would have known. Just after shooting the series, 
Mabel complained to the BBC's Val Gilgood about television. I love this. What a bastard art it is. I do hope it never outs sound. Well, I don't see how it can, as it's all in the hands of chimney sweeps and the like. I don't wonder you shook the dust off your feet with joy. How can anybody get results from TV as it is now? Never the same makeup girls or cameramen for rehearsals as it is for transmission. Gilgood responded, I confess I share most of your apprehensions about TV. It is exasperating, because if only people would give rather more thought to the problems, instead of trying to do too much, too quickly and too elaborately, a genuine medium might well emerge. Unfortunately, the TV audience is both voracious and stupid, and we have no one of Reith's calibre at this end to resist adequately the more moronic type of public demand. Strong and insulting words indeed. I wonder if you switched out the word TV for something like metaverse if the same applies. Some people are fully convinced that an interconnected immersive virtual reality is the next thing, while others scoff at the very idea of it. You could easily imagine someone writing today, I confess I share most of your apprehensions about the metaverse. It is exasperating because if only people would give rather more thought to the problems, instead of trying to do too much, too quickly and too elaborately, a genuine medium might well emerge. Here's Jen on the irony of Mabel and Gilgood's complaints about a new medium. What I always thought was, was ironic about that exchange that you mentioned was that all of that stuff that they're complaining about, they were doing in the 1920s. So they were trying to figure out how to work this new medium. And there was a, you know, there was a lot of experimentation. And, and Mabel was, and so was Val. Um, both of them were in the forefront of experimentation on radio. And they were all dealing with, you know, a lot of criticism from outside. Despite Mabel and Gilgood's views of TV, by the time of Mabel's death in 1957, the BBC was reimagining the future of broadcasting, thanks to the new and exciting Teleset. Had she lived, it's possible that Mabel may have made the jump to television, expanding and adapting her career as she had done so successfully for 32 years. Mabel continued to entertain audiences right up until a heart attack put her in hospital in December 1956. Directly after her death in February, 1957, friends and employees at the BBC considered commemorating her life on radio, but the BBC decided against it. After the huge outpouring of grief and official commemoration in the wake of comedian Tommy Hanley's untimely death in 1949, some worried that the BBC would be obligated to memorialise the death of every radio celebrity. It seems a bit heartless now, especially as we do, as a society, memorialise public figures who have passed away. The incredible depth and variety of Mabel's radio career is shown in the Radio Times listings from 1956 to 57. A light comedic play with Dennis. A new production of The Laughing Mirror, written with Howard Agg in the 1940s. Readings on Morning Story. 
an acting role in a serious radio play, appearances on Children's Hour, and numerous Buggins family sketches. That's just in one year, at the end of her life, when she was 76 years old. She was busy right up until the end, to be sure. Nearly 100 years ago, in 1923, Marion Cole, a student with Elsie Fogarty at Central School of Speech and Drama in London, was at an afternoon diction class held at rooms in the Albert Hall. She describes what happened. There was a little woman, married, who struggled with lovely lyrics, which her strangely husky voice did not suit. But it was very clear that she loved poetry and Fogu was always encouraging her. One day she spoke this charming poem which nobody knew and her whole voice changed. Fogie looked up with her special smile and said, Dear, it's come. You're breathing, control, everything. You're now free. You wrote that, yes? I think you'll be able to write too. Bring me something quite different next time, dear, please. I'm so very glad. I knew you could do it. Next week, something quite different was a sparkling Cockney sketch, also an original, which had us all helpless with laughter. But this great little artiste, once in command of her own voice, could reduce us to tears just as easily. And her name was Mabel Constanduras. And that brings us to the end of this podcast. Now you know that Mabel Constanduras was a trailblazing female broadcaster and comedian for three decades on BBC Radio from 1926, a pioneer of the new medium of radio, an innovative and relentless creative a writer, broadcaster, actor and novelist, credited with the creation of both sitcom and soap opera in the UK, creator of the first radio family on either UK or American radio, 45 years old and a soon-to-be-separated wife, and the mother to an eight-year-old son when her professional life began. These were personal circumstances which were not at all normal a hundred years ago. She was also my great-great-aunt, and an absolute legend. And now we've all heard of her. Thank you so much for listening to the story of my Aunt Mabel. It has taken an embarrassing number of hours, days, weeks and months to bring it all together into one concise story across five episodes. Thank you for listening to this series. I appreciate you spending your time to learn about the life of Mabel Constant if you've liked what you've heard and think more people should know about Mabel, please share the episode or the series with someone and leave a five-star rating and review. It helps others discover the podcast and Mabel's story. Feel free to get in touch if you have any questions, comments or feedback. You can email me at jack, J-A-C-K, at themediamoment.com. That's jack at themediamoment.com. This podcast was researched, written and produced by me, Jack Shillito, with contributions from Jilly Bush Bailey, former actress and Professor Emirata at the Royal Central School of Speech and Drama in London, 
Jen Purcell, Professor of History and Chair of the History Department at St. Michael's College in Vermont, USA, and Dr. Carolyn Scott Jeffs, a playwright and lecturer in playwriting and dramaturgy at the Loughborough University. The part of Mabel was voiced by my friend, Kate Walker. Thank you to all four for their help and support. And of course, thank you to my wife, Denise, for her gentle nudging to keep going with the project and general encouragement throughout. To read more about Mabel, you can visit themediamoment.com forward slash Mabel dash Constantjuris. That's themediamoment.com forward slash Mabel dash Constantjuris. Resources for the podcast and for further reading if you'd like were Jen Purcell's book, Mother of the BBC, Mabel Constantjuris and the Development of Popular Entertainment on the BBC 1925 to 57 which is available to buy from Bloomsbury Publishing. You can simply do a Google search for Mother of the BBC and you'll find it. Other resources were Jilly's chapter on Mabel, which is published in the book Stage Women, 1900-50, Female Theatre Workers and Professional Practice. It's published by Manchester University Press and it can be found at manchesteropenhive.com. Another resource was Carolyn's thesis, Hilda, Mabel and Me, and an article written by her titled Voice, Personality and Grandma, Mabel Constantjuris and the Buggins Family, which can be found on tandfonline.com. Thanks again, and let's go out on some jazz. <laughs>